You are listening to The Best in Wealth Podcast, episode number 106. This is The Best in Wealth Podcast, a show for successful family stewards who want real answers about wealth and investing so we can feel secure about our family's future. At The Best in Wealth Podcast, we think differently about wealth and investing. You should do. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Scott Wellens, and I am your host of the Best in Wealth Podcast. Now, this is a show dedicated to helping real people, that is you, my friend, build real wealth so together we can take family stewardship to the next level. I am a certified financial planner, an educator, and a wealth advisor, and today's episode is the pros and cons of index investing. All right, we got a lot to unpack today. But real quick, before we get to the topic of the day, how many of the listeners out there have dogs? And how many of you listeners that have dogs started out with your dog when your dog was a puppy? I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that my family got a puppy and that our sleep has been minimal, although that's getting much better. The potty training's getting better. But I'm telling you, this dog is about 12 weeks old. And my eight-year-old daughter taught this dog to sit yesterday. I was completely blown away. I didn't think a dog could do that that quickly in life, number one. And number two, I didn't think my daughter would be able to teach the dog or the puppy how to sit because my daughter's a little cray-cray and it just... I just didn't think it would happen. And I got home from work and she's showing me I'm like, this is awesome, Eva. Great job. I'm wondering what kind of trick she's going to teach the dog today. Let's get to the topic of the day. All right, here we go. Topic of the day, the pros and cons of index investing. You know, we've been on a little journey the last few episodes and we have... The last two episodes talked about the conventional ways of investing. And we did that a couple episodes. And then the last episode, bestinwealth.com backslash 105, we looked at the results of conventional investing. And whoa, we figured, found out that they're not very good. They're not the way a family steward should invest. If we have our family's best interest in mind, it appears that conventional investing, in most cases, we end up with not as much money as we deserve, given the risk that we're taking. And in now today, I want to talk about another approach, which is index investing and the pros and cons within index investing. And then starting next week, we will unpack what I call the family stewardship approach to investing. But first this week, and before we talk about the pros and cons of index investing, first we need to define what is a market index. And I went to Investpedia to figure this out. And uh, not that I didn't know, but I wanted something to go off of. A market index is a weighted average of several stocks or other investment vehicles from a section of the stock market. 
Don't worry, we're going to unpack this in a little bit. And it is calculated from the price of the selected stocks. Market indexes are intended to represent an entire stock market and track the market's changes over time. All right, that's Investpedia, but let me give it to you in my terms. So we've talked about in the last few weeks all the research that has been done throughout the years in the Center for Research on Security Prices that now we know what the stock market has to offer. But indexes then are something that we can track. Indexes are not an investment. An index is something that you can look at to see how your particular investment is doing versus the index. And here are some examples of indexes. Again, this is not an investment. Standard, Standard & Poor's most famous is the S&P 500. And that measures the market weight of the 500 largest companies in the United States. And when I say market cap weight, it means that the largest of the 500 stocks gets more weighting than the smallest of the largest 500 stocks. And now we have an S&P 500. And that's what you see every day when you're looking at the, the news, how the stock market is done. You've seen either the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones. Incidentally, I'm not going to get into the Dow Jones, but the Dow Jones uses a crazy formula and it is only made up of 30 stocks. But there's other indexes as well that captures broader ranges of the stock market than just the S&P 500. Russell is another index provider. And the Russell 1000 doesn't measure the 500 largest stocks in the United States. It measures the 1000 largest stocks in the United States. And then there's the Russell 2000, which measures the smallest 2000 companies in the United States. And when I say 2000, it's just a figure of speech because there might be more than 2000 companies within the Russell 2000. And then there's the Russell 3000, which measures a broad range of the whole stock market, all 3000 stocks or even more than that. But it's just a good term to use. And then indexes even break things down further. There is what's called the Russell 1000 value, which measures the index or the returns of any value company located within the top 1000 stocks. I think you're starting to get the idea. There's many, many indexes. So when you have an investment, you want to stack it up against the index that best represents the investment that you have. So if you have a mutual fund that is a small cap mutual fund, your benchmark isn't the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest stocks. It might be the Russell 2000, which are the small cap stocks. Are you tracking me so far? I hope so. Again, I'm not giving you any investments, just what a market index is. And when an, a market index provider comes up with the list, let's say for the Russell 2000, the small companies, on day one, it has a list of all of the small companies. And then during the year, 
things happen. Some of those small companies become large. Some of them become really small and they fall outside of the actual market index. So once a year, we have what's called reconstitution day when these market indexes kick out the stocks that or kick out the companies that don't belong in the index anymore and bring in the companies that that should now be part of the, let's just say, Russell 2000. That's what an index is. So then let's fast forward a little bit. What is an index fund? Now we're getting to an actual investment that you could invest in. And an index fund attempts to track one of the indices or one of the indexes that I just mentioned previously. In fact, in 1971 is when the very first index fund became available to pension funds. I keep talking about, or I have in past episodes, the University of Chicago and all the smart scientists there that were part of making the Center for Research on Security Prices. Well, Wells Fargo grabbed uh, a couple of those people back in 1971 so they could advise in starting the very first index fund, which was a S&P 500 index fund, a fund trying to replicate the S&P 500 index. 43 years ago. Then four years later, I'm sorry, more than 43 years ago, 47 years ago. Then in 1975, John Bogle started Vanguard and started the very first S&P 500 fund for the retail investor. So when you buy an index fund, let's just say you're buying a small cap index fund that is trying to replicate the Russell 2000, you buy it and your return should be what the Russell 2000 is minus the expenses that you pay and then what the fund has to pay with all the explicit and implicit costs. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but along with some tracking error as well that could exist in an index fund. You know, indexing offers a ton of investment benefits over con- over the conventional approach. I mean, let's look at this. Last week, we looked at how conventional investing has done throughout time, or at least in the last 15 years, and we saw that 86% underperformed their market indices, which means if we're going to invest in an index fund, we theoretically could be in the top 14% minus expenses. So if the expenses are too much within the index fund, you might fall below that depending on the index fund that you buy. And I'm not just talking about the expense ratio. There's a lot of other expenses involved in trying to run an index fund. But again, offers a number of benefits over the conventional approach, has a ton of diversification, usually has lower fees than conventional investing, and they follow a more transparent investment process, which means investors have a clear idea of what they're getting. So if I have a choice between investing in an index fund or conventional, it appears I want to invest in an index fund. 
But here's the deal. We need to look at, and I, I might make some people upset here because there's people that are probably listening to this show that adhere strictly to index investing or strictly to conventional approach investing. But there is a problem. There are cons with indexing that I want to unpack. I mean, the commercial index provider, in this case, S&P or Russell or others, they determine the stocks or bonds held in the mutual fund. The Russell, for example, publishes a list annually or semi-annually containing all the stocks composing the index, or you could replace the word index with benchmark. The manager attempts to closely track the benchmark, but rigid construction works against the strategy. And what do I mean by that? Most index fund managers, they're judged solely on their ability to track the index, track the index provider. If I'm the mutual fund manager of an index fund that's trying to replicate the Russell 2000, I want to track that index. That's how I'm judged. But the main problems with this approach are threefold. Number one, there's loss of control. Number two, there's a trading disadvantage. And number three, there is style drift. And I want to talk about all three of these quickly. The first is style drift, and this is something we never really think about. Well, in investing, we as family stewards need to find out the risk that we need to take in order to reach financial freedom or not run out of money in retirement. So it needs to be tied to our goals, our risk tolerance, and our risk capacity. And each one of these different market segments, like large cap or small cap or value or growth or real estate or international small cap, etc., they all have different risk scores assigned to them. But style drift goes something like this. If I'm a mutual fund manager and I'm trying to track the Russell 2000 on day one, I buy everything that's inside of the index provider, the Russell in this case, every company that is in that index, I want to go buy. But then what happens throughout the year? Um, One month goes by, six months go by, 10 months go by, and a bunch of these companies that I originally bought, well, they aren't small cap companies anymore. Some of them got bigger. Some of them got smaller. They don't belong anymore. And all of these companies that got bigger, they have a different risk score assessed to them. And ones that got smaller have a different risk score. So if we're looking for the expected return of small cap and 80 or 90 percent maybe we're getting that but what about the 20 percent or so that have drifted style drift from its intended purpose which was small cap it screws everything up it screws up our risk level it screws up our expected small cap return i mean if i want the return of the small cap segment i'm not getting it because of style drift in an index fund or an index they don't care The index fund provider 
All they're trying to do is track the index itself, and the index was never meant to be an investment in the first place. That's what style drift is. If if I want to invest some of my money in small cap, I always want small cap. I don't want some large cap and some micro cap. I want small cap. Style drift takes us away for, from our intended goals. That's number one. Number two, disadvantage of an index fund is trading. There is a trading, a big trading disadvantage in index funds. Think about it. It's called Reconstitution Day. I told you previously, we just spoke of style drift. So what happens after 12 months that you're in a particular, let's just say, small cap fund? Well, after that 12 months, and in some cases, six months, the index provider, and if it's a small cap fund, in this case, it could be the Russell 2000, they reconstitute their index. They get rid of all the companies that don't belong and bring in the companies that do, and it's called Reconstitution Day. So now you have all these index funds by different companies that are providing small cap index funds, and if they're trying to track the index and they need to make sure that they don't have any tracking error or limit their tracking error. The same day that Russell reconstitutes, they need to go buy and sell a bunch of companies to get whole again. And here's the deal. Everybody knows when reconstitution day is. They know there's going to be a ton of trading going on on Reconstitution Day. All of these funds tracking the Russell 2000 need to make trades. And what happens when everybody knows and when there needs to be a lot of trading done? It creates a very expensive trade and it's called the bid-ask spread. And I don't want to get into too much detail because I don't want to get in the weeds too much. But whenever a trade is made, my friends, there has to be a willing buyer and a willing seller. And in the case of an index fund that needs to bring companies inside of the index now because Reconstitution Day is here, well, it needs to buy companies. So you have a willing buyer. Now, there needs to be somebody on the other end of the table Who's a willing seller? They know that these index fund providers need to buy these companies to minimize tracking error. So what do they do? Their asking price is high compared to the bid price. So there's this gap. We call that the spread. If the ticker symbol says that the stock now is trading at $10, well, the person who's holding the stock may say, well, I'm not going to sell this to you for 10 bucks. I know you need it today. I'm going to sell it for 10.50 a share. And normally in any other market, let's just say a rummage sale, you usually meet in the middle. Somebody offers $10, you're willing to pay $8 and you meet in the middle at $9. Not so when it comes to this trading disadvantage. You as the buyer or the index fund provider needs to cross that entire spread in order to purchase the company to minimize tracking error. 
Those are expenses, my friends, that you never see in an index fund because they don't show up. There's a huge disadvantage in trading when it comes to index funds. These index fund managers, they have handcuffs on. It's a very, very rigid approach when you have to minimize your tracking error, when your stated goal is to track a benchmark that was never intended to be an investment in the first place. That's the trading advantage. Disadvantage, not advantage. And the last disadvantage of index fund investing is loss of control. As an index fund provider, you have, or even manager, you don't have, you cannot use your brain because your stated goal is to track the benchmark. You're judged how closely your return is compared to the benchmark at all cost through style drift, through trading disadvantage, and through some other areas. There are times when you are going to buy a stock, a company, because it's reconstitution day, because you have to minimize tracking error. But guess what? It could be a horrible idea. Anyone with a brain would say, I don't want to purchase this. But you have to. And let me give you one example. There's something called momentum with companies, either negative momentum or positive momentum. Negative momentum means that companies that are going down quickly tend to persist. And companies with positive momentum are their stock price is going up and it tends to persist. Each company gets assigned a momentum score. So here I am with handcuffs on, reconstitution day, and I need to buy all the companies that now are inside the Russell 2000. And there might be company X that was a large cap stock, and it's going to zero quickly. But on reconstitution day, it just happens to fall within the small cap category. So I'm forced to buy a company that appears to be heading to zero with a high negative momentum score. Anybody in their right mind would not purchase the stock right now. They're selling, 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 but I am a mutual fund trying to track the Russell. So I go buy it. I don't have a brain. Why? Because it's not the goal of the index. The index fund manager is not concerned of what is best for you and your family. The index fund manager needs to track the index. The same goes with positive momentum. Companies with a large positive momentum score tend to persist for a while. And backtracking a little bit, trading alone on momentum is a bad deal because there's so much cost involved. But when you're running a, an index fund and you just happen to own a company already that might have a high positive momentum score, and now it's reconstitution day, and if I'm just trying to track the index, I'm selling that company. 
when in reality, it's probably not a good idea to sell it quite yet. Let's wait a week or two or a month or two until that momentum score drops and now it's gone. You can't do that when you're running an index fund. You need to track the index. And my friends, there are lots of other ways where an index fund provider loses control. I don't have time to go over them all. But again, this isn't the goal of the index. The index fund manager is not concerned about what's best for you and your family. The index fund manager needs to track the index, period. Hey, don't get me wrong. Given the choice between conventional investing, I would choose indexing every day of the week. However, my friends, the story does not stop in 1971 with the first index fund. Research and science has not stopped in 1971. We have 47 years worth of history since 1971, worth of scientific history. There have been so many breakthroughs that address problems with index funds and also discoveries about the market that has led us to other ways to capture the power of the market. That's what I talked about three, four, five episodes, accessing the power of the market. And next week, we will begin to unpack the final approach, which I call the family stewardship approach to investing. Sometimes I call it the scientific approach to investing. And it uses all the research from the stock market for, per, for portfolio construction and implementation. This is the way a family steward should look at investing all of the science, all of the research, and using that to construct a portfolio that will give you the greatest chance for success. Let's not turn our backs to science as family stewards. We don't deserve that. Our family doesn't deserve that. And the people that made up the very first index funds, these are the same people that have been continuing to research to find portfolios that are in our best interest. So please stay tuned. We have a lot in store in the weeks to come looking at the family stewardship approach to investing. And I hope everyone has a fantastic week and I look forward to seeing you when I look forward to seeing you on the flip side. Take care. Bye-bye everybody. The Best in Wealth Podcast is hosted by Scott Wellens. Scott Wellens is the principal at Fortress Planning Group. Fortress Planning Group is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by Securities Act of Wisconsin in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Fortress Planning Group does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Best in Wealth Podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.